Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. Today we are uh, very honored and privileged to have uh, uh, my first Ashtanga Yoga teacher as our guest. His name is David Ingalls. Meditation now, or what I teach in class, or what I teach in a yoga class, is quite different than what I learned, but it is about essentially quieting the mind. If you can quiet the mind, you can see what it's doing. If you can't quiet the mind, you're just a slave to it. There's no separation in my life anymore from what's yoga, what's not yoga, ever. So there's no goal. I'm not trying to get someplace. It just isn't like that anymore. And without further ado, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks, Nisish. So usually when we do these podcasts and interviews, my first question is to ask a little bit about the background of the person, their upbringing, and how they got to the place where they are. Uh, we can keep it brief, especially something about your upbringing. Well, starting with upbringing, basically uh, from upstate New York, Christian Breck background, was drafted in the Army in 1969, so that's Vietnam era. Uh, didn't have to go to Vietnam, was stationed in Alaska. Became friends with an Episcopal priest, and he told me, I thought, like an Easterner, not a Westerner. And that was a pivot point, because once I found that out, and I found out there were other people who thought whatever Eastern thinking happened to be at that time, I immediately started looking in that direction. And within a few years, I became a TM practitioner, a TM teacher, Transcendental Meditation, taught for 10 years full-time, and it sort of went from there. Eventually, I was always teaching something. I've had a dance studio, I became a coach, I became an elementary school teacher, I became an Ashtanga teacher, I became other yoga teacher. So it's always teaching has sort of been at the core. Well, thank you. That gives quite an insight into the last very many years of what you've done. So I believe Transcendental Meditation came to you in about 71, if that... Yeah, that somewhere right, right in there. And right. by pretty quickly, I went off to teacher trainings, which were quite interesting because you spent 8, 10, or 12 hours a day meditating then. Mm. So my introduction to yoga was through meditation, not through an asana practice. We had a small asana practice, we had a small pranayama practice, but the emphasis was on being quiet. How was life back in those days when this was all sort of alien and foreign to this land? Did you go and study with Maharishi or with someone else? No, we had to study with Maharishi. So we studied with him, even though he had people under him, but we were on basically, our minimum was a one-month course. I don't even remember what they were called. And then I was in Italy for three months doing the actual teacher training, becoming quote-unquote certified. It was the middle of, you know, everybody was a hippie then, so we had to dress in uh, suits. We had to wear a suit. That was our big thing. The men had to wear ties. Sort of counterculture to the counterculture. 
while doing meditation, you had to be in suits? Yeah. No, no, not while, but while teaching. So we were presentable. And there was the start of sort of this scientific error backing up the spiritual practice. Chopra walked in at a certain point. He also became a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So Deepak Chopra. Yeah, Deepak. So there were lots of people coming in to the practice. Joe Namath. Who was the other one? Uh, the big TV guy. Um, well, I can't even remember him. But lots of stars were doing it. Lots of people were starting paying for the practice. Those of us that were full-time teachers, we didn't get rich, but we made a decent living. And part of our money, one of the interesting things then was part of our money was actually put towards taking further courses. So you were constantly invested in spending more time meditating for very little money. And it was quite a gracious system as long as it lasted. You mentioned about your thinking was like Easterners, and you were told that. Now, you know, what that thought brought up in my mind was, was there something at your home, your upbringing, that made you think like that? Or was it your environment? Or were you inherently just gravitated towards that kind of spirituality? So growing up Christian, I can't find a pivot point. Nothing happened to me. But I wasn't, even though I was in youth groups, active in the church, and that was just the environment of my small community, I never was mentally, I did everything that they wanted me to do, but I was never particularly comfortable with the philosophy of Christianity. Only certain people get into heaven, all this kind of stuff. It didn't make sense to me. So when this Episcopal priest, who was a good friend, said, you think like a Westerner, it just opened up, because I didn't know, what, I, didn't, I didn't even know there was a West at that point. I was 21 or 22. You east, know. you mean. Yeah, East, sorry. You think like an Easterner, and I had no idea what that meant. So my first book was Tao Te Ching, and just, just reading it made my mind relax. The words, the presence of the words, it just, it was like, oh, this really is comfortable for the way I think. And it was the first time I'd ever felt any comfort that way, that there was something else other than what I'd learned. And it was really quite, it was entirely natural. Then I started meditating. And what did meditation mean to you then? And what does yeah. it mean to you now? It's been 40 plus years that yep. you've been doing it now? Yeah. So when I first started, I was really enchanted by the idea of enlightenment. Whatever that meant. And, you know, we would read about it or Maharishi would talk about it. And I was sure I would get enlightened. <laughs> and in many ways, that was sort of a personal goal, even though I didn't know what it meant, honestly. Over the years, the practice has gone through a lot of changes. It's gotten lighter. It's gotten more comfortable. And it's gotten less fundamental about really trying to get any place. And and at the end, at this point in my life, I mean, I'm 70, all of that's gone. The goal is gone. And I meditate or I don't meditate. Mentally, meditation now, or what I teach in class, or what I teach in a yoga class, is quite different than what I learned, but it is about essentially quieting the mind. 
if you can quiet the mind, you can see what it's doing. If you can't quiet the mind, you're just a slave to it. However you get there, and it might be in a shavasana, it might be in a headstand, it might be in a posture, but generally, and it might be using the breath, which is kind of what I teach now. If you can get some control of the breath, you can have, you can see the mind soften. Absolutely. And I think something interesting about the meditation part is the idea of managing your thoughts or managing your mind with the thoughts that are coming in, whether that's quieting down or if there are urges that are coming in, just controlling those urges in, in whatever form or fashion that you think will help you. Now, in your 20s, you were you were doing transcendental meditation, but it didn't involve much of active physical practice. And is that the reason why you started moving towards more of dancing style or eventually going towards Ashtanga? Or was there any other reason that moved you towards that direction? In my late or mid-40s, as a runner, my times really were going down. I was getting stiffer and stiffer. I was never a flexible person, always athletic. I always had a natural gift to practice. So whatever I took on, I would eventually get good at it just through practice, repetition and practice, whether it's meditation, something physical, it didn't matter. But as I found myself getting stiffer and stiffer, friends of mine in the meditation world said, oh, there are some physical yoga practices out there that you might like. And in those days, Bikram's was mentioned first. Nobody in this area taught it, so I tried to get it from a book, and I wasn't very successful. Then they sent me a videotape of uh, Richard Freeman doing Ashtanga, and that started to make more sense to me. So eventually I took a year off from running and just experimented with yoga to see what I would feel like. Let me see if the yoga really works. And you mean the asana practice? Yeah, the asana practice. What basically people were calling yoga. No meditation to it, none of that. And I felt like I already had all that, so it didn't bother me. I was looking for, I was actually looking for flexibility. And were you teaching in the elementary school at that point of time when when yoga, yes. when asana practice yeah. became part of your life? Yeah. How did that change your relationship with not just yourself, but how you taught as well? Because this was probably the first intense asana practice that you got involved in. Yeah, absolutely. It would take me, it took me three or four years to integrate the asana practice into my daily life. I mean, within two years or something like that. So one year, first of all, there wasn't anybody in this area teaching that type of yoga. So I would go to New York for a class. I eventually, once I took a summer and went out to Richard Freeman, that was my first class. And I found class to be extremely different than trying to practice on your own. And this was in Boulder? And at, it was in Boulder. At, okay. And then the next year I decided... I mean, none of, all this was quite spontaneous. The next year I decided, oh, let me go to India and meet this Patabi guy. Let me see what's going on. How because I wanted to track it back to its source because I'd already had sensed there was still a lot of, there was a lot of conflict in how it was being taught. Different people teaching different ways. And I, was, and I wanted to find out, well, what's, what's the difference here? 
between what's being taught in India and what I'm getting in all these other places. What year was this in? Oh, I don't know. 98, 97, like that. Oh, at that time they were still in the old They were shala. in the old, yeah, it's in the old shala, 10, 12 people practicing at a time. So I did all that. Eventually I came back and I started teaching. Every now and then I would just teach some postures in a phys ed class to my elementary school. And of course kids loved it. I mean, some of the boys liked the balance things. We didn't do a lot. We just did little pieces. And every now and then, like we would be running laps on a field, and I'd say, and I'd teach them bow posture. So everybody would lay down on the grass and do a bow posture. And you could actually hear spines cracking in elementary kids doing this posture. They would jump up and go, I feel really good, and go run their best lap. And it was really fascinating to me to watch how their nervous system changed immediately with some posture. And that was a big learning, a big turning point for me, is that, oh, for these kids, so now backbends bring energy into the system. So if somebody else wants that energy, we can do some backbends. And it doesn't have to be a full hard backbend. It can be an easy backbend. So eventually, those type of things begin to the practicality of using a posture for a specific effect began to uh, percolate for me. Because Ashtanga doesn't really teach it that way. In spending time with Patami, it was my style. I'm good at practicing. I'm good at doing what people tell me to do. But there was, in the Ashtanga world, you almost had to make up reasons about the postures. Because Patami didn't talk about it. He really didn't. You went to senior teachers and just try to figure out what they were saying. And, and eventually, I had to find some other source for how to talk about the yoga. You were the first to open an Ashtanga studio in the D.C. area. Yeah. And this was the only one for many, many years. A lot of us who have practiced Ashtanga or were introduced to Ashtanga have gone through the studio learning from you. But eventually... You thought there was more to the asana practice. And is that when you started looking out for even further sources? Is that the right way to ask? Or when you, when you started looking, I think A.G. Mohan was, A.G. and Indra Mohan were, were the ones that you went to. Yeah. Or was there anyone else? I, I, well, there were, I became frustrated with the Ashtanga practice as being a yoga practice because I wanted it to be more. Where was the meditation? Where was the quietness? And as much as I love the physicality of Ashtanga, I kept looking for where's the yoga? Because everybody would adopt it as a physical practice, get in shape and all that type of stuff. I felt like the breathing wasn't deep enough. It just didn't feel like it was quite correct to be all that it could be, if I could use that sort of term. So eventually... And I don't even remember where I found them. I did discover the Mohans maybe through a book, found out they were going to teach a course in, in India, so off I go. Immediately, just even talking to them, I really sensed they had a much different feeling about doing their yoga. They had a yoga feeling about doing the yoga, not just jumping, not everything just being physical. And they were really good at using language to integrate the intimacy of what a posture can be like and what it can be like inside and not just 
going from one posture to another, sort of in a robotic type of way. So using common words now, it became a much more mindful practice. And to do that, I had to slow it down. So when I slowed down and I brought it back, lots of people didn't like it. And there became a conflict in many ways in the studio and a conflict between what I wanted to teach and what people wanted to practice because they were used to the old Ashtanga. So some people got comfortable with it, some people didn't. But eventually, I became much more comfortable as a teacher teaching deeper breath work with the Ashtanga system, and I still keep the Ashtanga system. Because I think, in a lot of ways, it's absolutely correct. Just slow it down. Not everybody's going to do all the postures. I mean, these are all things I had to learn, because with Batavi, everybody did every posture. But eventually, you figure that out. And Mohan's gave me, and I've been to him quite a few times, they really gave me that permission to... Uh, deepen my understanding about how postures work specifically for different people at different times in their life, how to teach it, how to apply it. So that takes me to the teacher of Mohan's and Patavijo is Krishnamacharya. Right. And there are very many students who are all different, whether it's uh, Mr. A.G. Mohan, uh, Indra Mohan. I don't know if she studied uh, with him or not, but at least I think they knew each other. And then Patabi Joe is BNS Iyengar and BKS Iyengar a little bit, but he considers Krishnamacharya to be his teacher. Now, I think from my perspective, the greatness of Krishnamacharya is that based on the student, his teachings changed and based on his age as well, his understanding also changed. So that's what he taught. But from your perspective, from your experience of teachers and students, how do you think he taught his students and how do you bring that into your practice if you do? So A.G. Mohan spent 18 years with Krishnamacharya. He went from being an engineer to eventually stopping the engineer practice and became a yoga teacher. His wife, Indra, became the first woman to actually receive a PhD from Krishnamacharya for yoga. So they're very invested in what Krishnamacharya taught. They understand the Ashtanga system. They actually they learn some of it. I think Mohan was in his 30s when he started. He's actually, he's just a few years older than I am, so we have a lot in common. And um, he's really good at explaining that, yeah, different yoga is meant for different people at different times of their life. And the yoga should be adoptable. It should be modifiable. It's not just one size fits all. And so they teach that way. If somebody wants an athletic practice, then they might refer them to an Ashtanga system or an Ashtanga-like practice. But they teach all postures individually, not in a group class. So it's never everybody doing one thing. In a group class, when we practice, we do maybe 10 postures, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of breath work, and then resting. So it's really quite simple. And they do that because they really understand that people should be taught individually. Group teaching really has some limits to it. 
everything they did with Krishnamacharya was individually, meaning every now and then they had one, two, or three people, but he never taught them in a group class. The explanation that Mohans give about yoga, and they start with the first sutra itself, Atha Yoga Nushasanam, and, and to them, when I heard their explanation that yoga starts whenever you start thinking about it, whenever you're mindful about it, is something that has just been imbibed in my life. But what is yoga according to you now uh, that you've been practicing very many different aspects of it, the asanas, the pranayama, the meditations, and also it's evolving for you. But what does it mean to you? And not just going inside, but in relations to life as well, because we have to live a life outside rather than just being inside. There's no separation in my life anymore from what's yoga, what's not yoga, ever. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. So there's no goal. I'm not trying to get someplace. It just isn't like that anymore. Whether we use the term mindfulness, not mindfulness, I tend to be really, really comfortable with sort of Advaita philosophy. I've spent a lot of time with Ramesh Balsakar in Bombay. It's kind of where I am mentally. So I just kind of, you know, I accept my mind. I accept what it does. I accept what happens. And that's it. So one of the things that happened to you a few years ago, I don't remember the exact year, that you were diagnosed with cancer. Right. And... uh, It was a difficult part of your life, from what I understand. And yoga has helped you tremendously go through it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it's interesting because it brings up your mortality right away and you have to deal with it. And even though I had non-Hodgkinson's lymphoma, went through chemotherapy... Doctor, my cancer doctor used to say, you're the healthiest cancer patient I've ever had. And I kept up my practice. I never didn't practice. Having the practice both mentally and physically at that time, and it's been, I don't know what it's been, 10 or 15 years now, made a huge difference in how my body acted to the chemotherapy and all that kind of stuff. So, but once again, you know, it happened. Wasn't anything I could do about it. I continued to teach. Everything just went I mean, I just continued doing everything like I normally would. And, you know, if something was going to happen, my attitude was, okay, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. That wasn't my experience. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, so the, the meditation and the yoga made a big difference. I'm really happy I had it at that time in my life. Not an easy experience to go through mentally, physically, in every aspect. Yeah, but I, no experience is really that easy. You know, if you accept it, it gets easier. You stop arguing with the experience. You know, lots of things are hard in life. And one of, one of the great things with Ramesh Balzakar is used to say, everything is created in, what do we say, opposition. In your life, sometimes, you, you know, you have these extremes operating. You can argue with it or there it is. You know, I can be with it 
Stop fighting with it. And same thing with the yoga practice. Stop fighting with the yoga practice. Once you figure those things out, you get to be inside even though all this outside stuff is happening. And it's delightful, even with cancer. So we're getting towards the end of our time. Um, we've talked a lot about the past. Where do you see yourself in the next, let's say, 15, 20, 30, and 40 years? I'll just hobble along and teach whatever, whatever it is. You know, I've been going to Bali twice a year for the past four or five years. I still like to surf. I like to do, I like to go skiing. I like being active. And I like teaching. Teaching centers me more than any other activity I do in my life. So teaching remains. So before we close, we usually do a small rapid fire. A few questions that we ask. They can be just one word answer. And these are three or four questions that we ask. Go. So our first question is, one childhood memory which brings joy to your mind? Uh, being on boats with my parents. One person that you would like to go back and meet in history? Oh, maybe Thomas Jefferson. Any song or a movie that, that you absolutely love or any book that you absolutely admire? I've always liked the music from South Pacific. I like musicals. Books come and go... I don't have one favorite book. And one final question. If you had to travel to one place and go right now, where would that place be? I think I'd go back to Bali. Good choice. I love Bali. Well, thank you so much for doing this, David. I absolutely enjoyed talking to you. Um, I learned so much more about you than I knew before. And I'm sure our listeners will, will learn a lot more by listening to this podcast and in this interview. Thank you so thank much. You. Namaskar. Right, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to our show. If you like our podcast, please uh, rate us on iTunes and don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you so much. Bye.